So I'm going to introduce Dr. Wiles, who introduced himself already from UCSD and infectious disease, and he is going to lead a case-based management uh, study with adverse uh, effects. Thanks, Marion. We'll give our crew a second to get up here. Okay, while they're assembling, we'll get rolling here. Um, so what we'll do is, is talk about some of the side effects and, and ways to manage complications of interferon and ribavirin with or without a, a protease inhibitor therapy um, in the setting of a couple cases. And what we'll do is pose some questions to the audience and then I'll turn to my colleagues here and, and we'll get some feedback uh, from the panel as well about how they might approach some of these problems. Um, hopefully. I think one of the most interesting things about case-based panels is you'll see in a lot of these situations there's probably no right answer and maybe there are many different ways to handle some of these situations. So this is just my list of disclosures um, for some clinical trials uh, done at UCSD. So this is kind of what we want to cover, the learning objectives. So first, just to kind of run down and make sure you all are comfortable with recognizing the side effects of interferon-based therapy. Uh, then compare and contrast the side effects of the two currently available protease inhibitors. Uh, and then, as, as I said, we'll use cases to go through what might be the most effective management for some of these side effects. Before we jump in, we're going to start with a question here for the group. So which of these side effects is characteristic of both Flapivir and both Sepivir? So which of these side effects would be common to both of the protease inhibitors? I see none of our panel brought their clickers. <laughs> oh, some of them. Okay. All right, there we go. And we'll come back to this at the end. Um, looks like you guys are already ahead of the curve. Been listening this morning. So our first case presentation. This is a 45-year-old woman, chronic HCV infection, former injection drug user, but has been clean for quite a while now. She has genotype 1B hepatitis and a high viral load. Um, in terms of her past psychiatric history, she was diagnosed with depression as a teenager and actually had had a suicide attempt with a, a diphenhydramine overdose um, when her boyfriend left her at age 16. But since then, really has been very stable and has not carried a kind of chronic di diagnosis of depression since then and has not been on any medications to treat depression. So what would you do in regards to her psychiatric history and her management? Um, would you refer her to psychiatry before you started, would you take it kind of upon yourself, start an SSRI? Um, would you say she has a contraindication and could not be treated with interferon-based therapies? Or would you continue work up and just start right therapy right away? So we'll let you guys answer and then I'll talk to the panel here and we'll see what advice somebody might have here. Okay, so looks like most would refer to psychiatry. Um, I'm just going to call out people. Arthur, what would you do in this case? Would you refer it, uh, right. Mass um, So, you know, I guess I'd get a little more sense from the patient. One issue is that um, I learned from other psychiatrists, like, look at their past history and see what they responded to in the past. And unfortunately, uh -huh. 30 years ago, they wouldn't have had SSRI. So <laughs> right. I can't say, like, you okay, this is something yeah. that I could use, um, <laughs> which otherwise I might feel comfortable if I knew there was a response in the past. And um, the idea of either preemptive treatment or watching, you know, there, uh, there are trials that do show uh, improved uh, outcomes if mm -hmm. you do start um, 
SSRIs in, in certain patients. So um, you know, I, I think uh, I think I might be comfortable with uh, two in this instance. Yeah. Okay. So nobody in the audience anyway picked the statement that interferon therapy was absolutely contraindicated in this patient. Anybody on the panel feel differently? Everybody be comfortable treating with some sort of management of. Yeah. And I think to make the point that something like. 70% of patients need something while on therapy. And these aren't the difficult patients. These are all of us in the room on interferon. 70% would need something. Yeah. Right? And we're all normal, sort of. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Good qualifier. So it, it might be worth asking what you expect from your psychiatrist, because they will say this patient can be treated. So you can call that one in. Yeah. Because they don't want to stand in the way of your giving a patient. They think hepatitis C therapy may be life-saving, and they're not going to say, no, don't give it. So the question is, what do you hope to get out of your referring psychiatrist? And if it's clearance, well, they're going to, they'll clear this patient. But what's beneficial may be to meet the patient before they get depressed to right. establish a baseline. Mm -hmm. But I found the clearance issue. Right. Um, our psychiatrists have cleared every single person we've sent to, and so we just stopped sending it for clearance. I think that's a good point. Yeah, we kind of routinely send our patients in our contact group, but they're always cleared. They're always cleared. But the meeting before you start interferon yeah. is, 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 I think, a valuable baseline. Good point. So um, this is just kind of a laundry list of some of the issues that are faced with initiating a, a combination therapy that has certainly lots of side effects and toxicities. And we'll run through some of these. We're going to spend our, most of our time on the psychiatric complications, then the hematologic complications, and finish up with weight loss. And then, as it's been alluded to, Betty's going to talk more about drug interactions. So depression, just to brief set the stage a little bit, it's thought that the mechanism relates to interferon downregulation of receptors, particularly glucocorticoids and serotonin receptors. Um, there's some in vitro data to suggest this, and probably part of the reason that SSRIs are relatively effective. Um, and as Marion alluded to, mild to moderate depression is very common. Um, in, in trials, 20% um, or so in phase three HCVPI trials, with a, real, a very low discontinuation rate because of depression, um, but if you look at kind of real-world populations and scenarios, you'll find that depression rates are much, much higher. Um, this is a VA series here where I quote up to 70% um, have some pre-existing level of depression, including a lot of major depression going in. You see there the bottom point. Same thing, I think, goes for our co-infected patients. Certainly a lot more um, pre-existing psychiatric disease in, in certain populations. Um, and then there obviously are other, as well as severe depression, there are other things you need to be have on your radar screen, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. Um, and in some of these more um, difficult to manage, I would call um, uh, psychiatric diseases, I think are pretty routinely would send to see them to see a psychiatrist if you have a bipolar or somebody with a schizophrenia or something like that. I would just add quickly, being as I practice in the VA and take yes. care of HIV, hep C, co-infected patients, PTSD is a very common um, uh, disease yeah. that we see in our patients. And usually those patients are identified, but um, screening PTSD it's not something that happens on a regular basis, and I know most of us would do PHQ-9 screens and things like that for our patients, but I would highly recommend that you consider uh, PTSD screening, not even in veterans, but in a lot of our patients who do experience violent events in, in their right. life. So. so also in patients in prisons, would you recommend that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is kind of um, just a kind of an audience polling question to see what most of you are dealing with. Um, so, do you or don't you have psychiatric services available in your clinic to assist you with the management of HCV therapy? And again, this is just a curiosity really more than anything else.
Okay, so yeah, about 70% do. I'm guessing most all of our panel does in wherever they treat. We certainly do have psychiatrists in kind of in our clinic. Um, so that's good. We don't. No? We don't. We know where they live, but we don't. <laughs> you can get a hold of them. There, there's a barrier. Yeah. You know, they don't want, we don't have Glenn Treesman coming in yeah. to help us out. They're like, oh, God, do we have to see the patient? I think this, this is the difference of, of pulling an H, primary HIV audience versus a, maybe yeah. a hepatology-trained audience as well, because we have a lot of resources, I think, in HIV that we may not realize are, are not as accessible for um, HCV mono-infected patients. Good point. So what about management of depression? Um, the first bullet here is just really to make a, what I think is a good idea, a little bit of a plea for some sort of monitoring. Um, the way we have it set up in our co-infection clinic is everybody comes in and does a questionnaire kind of while they're getting checked in or, or waiting to see one of the practitioners. And we have a CESD um, uh, score that they do quickly. And you can just kind of get, we get handed that as we walk into the room. You can see what their score is, what it was last time, and kind of, you know, we always ask about how they're feeling and how they're doing, but it's another indicator, kind of more objective maybe, where you can see, oh, their score's really high. I should really pay attention to what's going on with their psychiatric disease at this visit. Um, and then we'll come into the issues of when to initiate therapy. So the issue that Arthur raised about some of the studies, should it be prophylactic? Should you just do it in patients manifesting symptoms of depression, more targeted initiation of therapy? Um, and then what to use. So um, again, I'll show you some studies with citalopram and escitalopram. Uh, Selexa or Lexapro if you're using the trade names. Um, but uh, I think any SSRI, and what I would urge is that, and I'm sure most of you already have this, is becoming comfortable with one or two SSRIs that you like to use and feel comfortable with, um, and, and developing kind of a rapport with those. And then if you get outside of, of that and you don't feel those are working and have to step on to second-line therapy or additional agents, that's when you probably want to bring uh, psychiatrists in, although I've added what would be, I guess, our first add-on if SSRIs weren't working would be bupropion or Welbutrin uh, as an add-on. The caution there would be lowering seizure threshold, which interferon can also do, so you do have to be careful, especially if you think you need to go to higher doses where that becomes more of an issue. And then mirtazapine or Remeron can be useful if you need an adjunctive agent or if you need primary therapy in somebody who's really having trouble with weight loss since it does stimulate appetite a bit. And if they have trouble with ribavirin and sleep and things like that at night, it can also be sedating. So again, finding a few that you're comfortable with, um, and as you'll see with Betty's talk, these all have potential interactions um, with tilapia and bocephalus, so um, generally start low and go slow would be the mantra. And then interferon dose reductions we talk about, we do it occasionally. There's actually not much in the literature about that really being terribly efficacious or having really been studied as a way to manage depression, but I think we do it in select cases. So this is the data that um, Arthur was kind of alluding to. Um, so this was a randomized controlled trial about initiation, initiating SSRIs, as in this case it was citalopram. Um, everybody started with a baseline. If their score got above eight, they were considered to have depression. So you can see uh, on therapy, uh, about 30% of the entire study developed a significant depression. And then you can see in the group treated with citalopram, their scores come back down with treatment of their depression with an SSRI. This was actually stopped early because of a, such a significant difference between placebo. So certainly this, I think, supports in a randomized controlled fashion the use of SSRIs as initial therapy for incident depression due to interferon. And then now this, the most recent study was a randomized controlled trial looking at actually prophylactic SSRIs in patients who didn't have a history of depression. So these patients were enrolled three months ahead of time and followed and had serial scores done to kind of verify that they didn't have evidence of depression. And then were randomized again to either starting prophylactic escitalopram in this case 
two weeks before they started on their interferon regimen or placebo. And again, you can see that um, this is now remaining free of depression. The, the treatment group had a much higher rate of remaining free of symptomatic depression, again, assessed by another scale, than did the placebo group. Um, so I think an interesting study um, and would lend credence anyway to the approach if you want to use prophylactic therapy. Um, do most on the panel here use prophylactic therapy or just in kind of initiate therapy if somebody develops problems with depression? In, in somebody without a history of depression. So I, I recommend prophylactic therapy and tell them those data because right. patients have, I'm not depressed. I, I don't need anything. Yeah. I can, I've dealt with lots of bad things in my life. They don't sort of understand that it's interferon messing with your brain and bringing out the inner you. Bringing out the inner you. Yeah, please. So, you know, I think it. I think it depends on the patient. So, in our clinic, we definitely talk about depression from interferon and given the option. And sometimes it depends on what the pill burden of that patient already is. Like adding one more drug to the, to their therapy may be problematic. So, I think it's worth discussing discussing. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that we like to tell patients that if they start to notice any signs of depression that might be very subtle, that it might take a while for the citalopram or whatever um, antidepressant that uh, we add to work and therefore it's important to make sure that the patient uh, allows the provider to know about subtle signs of depression. The other thing that, you know, we talk about the word depression and I actually don't really think that's a great word to describe what interferon does to people. I mean, yes, it makes them depressed in the classic uh, DSM, like what are we up to, five now? Um, but that's not really what interferon does. Right. Interferon, <clears throat> I often describe it like being post-call as an intern. You're sort of tired, you're, you're irritable. Your irritability is actually, I would describe as one of the hallmark features. So if you say, are you depressed, they may say, no, I'm not depressed, but you find out they're yelling at their coworkers, their dog, their family members, and irritability, yeah. if that does respond very nicely to SSRIs. So depression may be the wrong term to talk to people about their mood. It's more about, it's more broad than that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a great yeah. point, definitely. Okay, great. So based on her history, went ahead and started her, oh, sorry, her no, question? No, no, do you have questions down the back? Do you want... Oh, you did. Okay. You gave me one. It's really more about the other one of the other talks. We'll come back to it. Um, so she was started on citalopram, 10 milligrams, um, and was initiated about a month later on triple therapy with telaprevir, um, PEG, and riba, weight-based ribavirin. So her baseline hemoglobin was 13.2, but about week six, patient came in, felt very tired, and you can see here what her what happened to her CBC. So her hemoglobin is down down to 9.2. Split the count of 104,000 in her white count here, you can see total 1,900 with an ANC of 715. On the good side is she was undetectable at week four. So we're going to talk about her anemia here and, and what would be the best approach in terms of managing her anemia. So would you stop all the treatment right now saying she can't tolerate it, get a hematology consult and a bone marrow biopsy, EPO, reduce the ribavirin, reduce the ribavirin and the PEG, or reduce the telaprevir.
Okay, we've got number four here. Good. Reduce the dose of ribavirin. Great. Nobody wanted, what else? 25% wanted to start EPO, which is uh, an option as well, and pretty much nothing with the rest of them. Okay. Um, Mark, you want to say anything about that? Does anybody be quoting all your data? No, I think it's, uh, it actually is uh, encouraging to see that. It reflects a really a transformation of the management of ribavirin from a time where we all believed it was inappropriate to reduce ribavirin because it would uh, impair SVR to a time that we now recognize it's the best approach to, to management of anemia. We could, I'm sure David's going to talk about that data, but yeah. um, it, it's a, that's actually a transformation in management over the last five years. Uh, it, it took Tlaparimbocephora to really drive that point home because the anemia is so significant. Yeah. I, I think the other um, point is the steps that you take. It's not always just titrate down 200. Like you can be aggressive once they're negative for RNA. Yeah. So yeah. drop yeah, them 400, good. drop them 600 in some cases. Yeah, that's a good point. So obviously, hematologic uh, side effects are one of the most frequently seen uh, when you're talking about peg ribavirin and triple therapy. Here in red, you can see the rates of um, some of the adverse events that have been touched on already a little bit with bocephavir. We'll just focus on anemia and neutropenia right now. So you can see about 50% with significant anemia compared to peg ribavirin at 30%. And neutropenia also has increased somewhat by bocephavir. Um, and that was seen, obviously, in naive and experienced populations. Whoops, too fast there. So similar data with telaprevir, although the rash comes up and we'll come back to rash um, as one of our other side effects. So I won't belabor that right now but also increased rates of anemia and the anorectal symptoms, which we'll also come back to. And I think this is some, and this is just separating out the anemia by the degree a little bit more, looking at even severe anemia, which is a hemoglobin less than 8.5. You can see about 8% with telaprevir compared to 2% in peg ribavirin controls for severe anemia. Um, and here's the both seprevir data. Um, as you might expect with longer duration of exposure to both seprevir, so if in this trial they were in the 44-week arm, um, a little higher rates of severe anemia with a hemoglobin less than 8.5. Um, but what I kind of want to focus on here is um, the management. So one, one is how it was managed in clinical trials, um, with dose reduction being fairly prevalent, about 20% in both of the protease inhibitor-containing arms, whether you're talking about bocephavir or telaprevir, um, and dose reduction less frequently undertaken in peg ribavirin control arms. Um, the, big, the major difference here being that in the telaprevir trials, erythropoietin use was not permitted, although it was used in a handful of patients. Um, but it was very prevalent in the bocephavir trials. So as you can see here, um, approaching 50% had some erythropoietin in the bocephavir trials. And as Mark already alluded to, we've really kind of, after these trials were completed and data has been analyzed and, and things have been looked at, um, would really not recommend that now as the primary strategy. Dose reduction would be the first way um, to go in terms of management of anemia, and that's based on um, some of this data right here, which just shows you response rates. And I'll really just draw your attention to the green bars in both of these. Um, so this is telaprevir data for patients who either never reduced, you see about a 79% SVR rate, but then if they reduce to 800 to 1,000 milligrams or to less than or equal to 600 milligrams, you see not really much of a drop off at all in SVR rates with dose reductions of ribavirin. Um, this is the naive population. You have your prior relapsers here who overall do better, right, than a treatment naive population. Um, and certainly here, even some of already this hint of what we'll come back to, that patients who experience anemia on therapy may actually even do better, um, probably because they're getting more exposure to ribavirin and, and other factors. Um, and I'll show you that data from uh, a more recent publication that um, Mark has that looked at the um, bocephavir data. And here are um, some more data. 
Um, by now, not so much about how much you dose reduce, but when the dose reduction occurs. And there is an indication that if it's very, very early, there may be a little step off, particularly for those patients who were previously treated, if you have to stop in the first four weeks. Um, but otherwise, again, response rates uh, seem very good across the board and really comparable uh, to the overall treatment responses, whether you have to dose reduce or not. Again, if you dose reduce later, certainly maybe a slightly better than if you have to stop very early. I just want to comment that this graph, the reason why after week 12, or, or, I'm sorry, yeah, week 12 is so much better, it goes 7286, it has to do with the stopping rules. So if you survived on this regimen past week 12, it's because you were a responder. So there's a selection process that occurs. Yeah. It's not that it's not that they did better. And here's um, just another way to kind of look at this about, and this is what Arthur had alluded to already about um, what the HCV RNA status is at the time you have to discontinue or dose reduce ribavirin. And here you can see that patients who were undetectable when they that did not discontinue versus had to discontinue, there, there's a, a decrement, but it's nothing like where patients who are still detectable at some level when they had to stop. And then the, um, oh man, there's so many anemia slides in here, okay. Um, so this is looking at EPO versus ribavirin. I should have taken some out, I think. Um, uh, look at the end of treatment response um, for patients who either undergo ribavirin dose reduction or did not have dose reduction or got EPO. Um, and you can see, again, no difference whether you approach it from a ribavirin dose reduction or add erythropoietin. Um, again, the rates of end of treatment response and SVR look uh, identical. Okay, and this is the last one I was trying to get to, to get to this idea of that anemia on therapy is actually a positive predictor of response. This just looks at their maximum hemoglobin decline and how they do both at end of treatment and SVR. And you can see the patients that experience more anemia on therapy, in general, you see an increase in their SVR rate um, as a reflection of, again, probably increased exposure to ribavirin. There also is a, a, a slight interaction between at least tilaprovir and ribavirin that I think Betty's going to touch on briefly when she talks about her drug interactions. So. We talked about, to death, her anemia, but if you remember, she also had an ANC of 715. Um, so what would you do about her ANC of 715? Would you start GCSF? Would people reduce her PEG dose? Um, would you continue and just monitor, reduce PEG all the way down to 90, or stop all therapy for this ANC? Okay. Most of you would continue and monitor. Great. You guys don't even need this talk. Um, Susanna, any comments? Uh, I would completely agree. You I agree. Think, uh, you know, we, generally speaking, we understand that uh, the low ANC, this is not like a chemotherapy patient population where there's a higher risk of severe infection or in this case in HIV patient population infections. And so um, 715 for sure, I think uh, you would be very comfortable continuing treatment. And, I think when and how different people decide to dose reduce their PEG or start GCSF really is more based on all level of comfort yeah. and less about uh, patient related outcomes. Treating ourselves. Treating ourselves. Yeah. Great. I think that's a great summary. So uh, Susanna touched on a lot of this. So um, most of the lymphopenia and neutropenia that we see, we attribute to pegylate interferon, which kind of just overall suppresses hematopoiesis in the bone marrow. Um, Bosepivir, as was alluded to earlier, does add a little bit in the way of neutropenia. So the rates of ANCs less than 750 or 500, you can see here, are slightly higher. The, the numbers with Bosepivir are the first ones there. 
um, 31% versus 18% or 8% for severe neutropenia versus 4% with pegriba alone. Um, but importantly, really, there's been no study thus far that's really been able to associate an increased risk of infection with neutropenia. Um, again, as has been alluded to before, pegylate interferon itself is associated with an increased risk of infection, but to then go on and show that neutropenia induced by peg interferon above and beyond that has a further increased risk of infection has not been able to be shown really in any study that I'm aware of. Um, so what, what generally would I recommend or what do we do? Um, so GCSF, I think really ANC of 500 is probably where you would consider coming in with GCSF. Um, again, I have to state there's really no evidence that this prevents infections by using GCSF even at that level to raise the ANC. Um, and then certainly if the patient had been undetectable and you were much later in therapy, um, you know, GCSF is not without side effects, bone pain, actually a lot of patients don't tolerate the injections very well. We've seen a couple sweet syndromes induced by GCSF. So um, if it's later in therapy and they've been suppressed for quite a while, I would probably go with PEG dose reduction if you were really worried about their ANC as it maybe as opposed to using GCSF. Um, this is just to talk about co-infected patients specifically for a second. Um, there was a large cohort study that was, is in press still in CID um, that looked at a population that I think in a lot of ways probably better mirrors what a lot of us are treating. So uh, more cirrhotics, so 45% cirrhotics, relatively preserved CD4 counts around 500. Um, and you'll see here that neutropenia is very common. So less than 1,500, 65% of the patients reach that level on therapy. Only about 10% were severe neutropenia, less than 500. The reason I, I brought up this study is one, about 30% developed infections, but most were mild, didn't require hospitalization, didn't require treatment discontinuation, but there were 5% serious infections. But this is the first study that I've really seen that at least showed a trend maybe towards more severe infections or more infections with neutropenia. Um, so here in blue is any infection, and then the severe infections are in red, and you can see here by the level of neutropenia. So at less than 500, they did have about 8% severe infections. That was defined as somebody that needed to be hospitalized, um, needed to stop therapy, or died from their infection. Um, and you can see that was about double of what it was in patients who never experienced neutropenia but less, less than 1,500, which was 4%. Neither of these were significant um, in terms of statistical tests. Um, you can see that for any infection, there was a trend. So cirrhotics will have lower counts. Can you repeat the question? Oh, sorry. The question was, isn't neutropenia a marker of more severe liver disease? Um, and it is, and cirrhotics are going to be an increased risk of infection, period, whether they're neutropenic or not. So certainly, um, that's one of the things I pointed out, why it's important to know the population you're talking about. And this study had almost 50% cirrhotics. Do you want to use the microphone? Because otherwise, everybody else can't benefit from your question. Oh, great. Yeah, we don't want to stop you. Go ahead. We like the questions. Well, I'm just saying, I know, but there's, you know, there's cirrhosis and there's cirrhosis, and the worst neutropenia correlates with the worst degree of cirrhosis. So that's why I don't understand what, you know, there's probably no way to correct for that. Right. So, I mean, I, I don't know of the 45% that were cirrhotic in this study, how many had biopsy. And, and even on biopsy, right, you're not going to be able to grade cirrhosis. Now, you can look at platelet counts and correlate, you know, is the platelet count less than 100,000, which we associate with, you know, portal hypertension really is what you're talking about now and more severe liver disease. But, yeah, unless you're going to do portal venous pressures on everybody, you probably aren't going to be able to categorize those patients. <clears throat> 
So there might you know there is a there's a paper well it's a, it's under review now but in the ideal study the study that enrolled three thousand people one of my colleagues looked at this and uh, it's actually the lymphocyte count that is strongly correlated with infection risk on interferon. Uh, so one of our conclusions from this is that we've been looking at the wrong count uh, for years, and, and a low ALC, the absolute lymphocyte count, when you get below 500, you do see this increased risk. And then we did, to adjust for what you're talking about, we did a multivariate model and put in other factors. And the only ones that really stood out was uh, a female sex and lymphocyte count. And neutrophils dropped right out. Cirrhosis dropped out of the model. So since we did that analysis, and uh, I've been looking at the ALC, but the only thing you can do for that is to drop the PEG dose. And if you look at the PEG-2A label, sure enough, they describe a lot of lymphopenia. So mm -hmm. think about dropping the PEG dose if you see a absolute lymphocyte count below 500. And maybe that paper will get published. I've been twisting the arm of my colleague to submitted and finally did so yeah. I heard Maybe a rumor of it but I, I couldn't find it <laughs> oh it's <laughs> <laughs> it was mentioned all right so um there it is. well no this is not uh, specific to what Mark's talking principle. about so I, I think one of the other issues that comes up in co-infected patients uniquely obviously is treatment induced CD4 lymphocytopenia um, it's very common obviously but it's a, one of the things to emphasize with patients too because they become very concerned if they see their CD4 counts go down is one, to counsel them to expect it and to talk to them about what really is happening. You're suppressing all the counts uh, and we tend to focus, have them focus on their percentage, their CD4 percentage, not their absolute count because the percentage usually stays the same or even goes up. It's been described to actually go up quite frequently uh, in some of the initial registrational trials in co-infected patients. Um, but the other thing that invariably comes up is if patients happen to dip below 200 or below 14%, what do you do, if anything, about reinstituting perhaps um, OI prophylaxis. Um, so there was one study that looked at um, whether patients attained a CD4 count below 200 during therapy um, of co-infected patients. And what they found was there was a increased risk of opportunistic infections in those who had treatment-induced CD4 lymphocyte counts less than 200. Um, Pre-treatment, they had roughly the same counts in these groups, although there was an association with a lower nadir at any time in the past and, and going back to less than 200. Um, what they did, so they did see this rate of 6% of OIs were seen in patients who had a CD4 count above 200. They saw 23% of the patients less than 200 had OIs. Only 31 patients in that group. And their classification of OIs was a, a little, nah, not dubious, but it, most of them were candidial, candidiasis or esophagitis from Canada. Um, they did have three pneumocystis, but if you took out the uh, Canada esophagitis, it would no longer have been significant either. Um, and they had higher rates of bacteremia and sepsis in the patients who got to a, a CD4 lymphocyte count less than 200. So this probably does correlate with what Mark is talking about in an absolute lymphocyte count manner as well. Um, so they recommended reinstitution of OI prophylaxis if somebody dropped below 200 CD4 T cells. And so um, I just thought that would be an interesting question for the panel because I don't think there is a clear guidance on this. What, what do all of you do if you see treatment-induced CD4 lymphocytopenia. Do you restart OI prophylaxis? Um, and at what threshold if you do? Well, I guess you can answer the question. I think I posed it as a question here, too. So we'll see what you guys think, um, and then we'll see what our panel thinks. Oh, I'm not going to read them. Go ahead.
Okay. So the majority are reinstituting whether they use an absolute count or a CD4 percentage less than 14%. They, they would reinstitute. A few don't. Anybody? What the panel generally reinstitute, put them back on Bactrim or something like that if they're less than 200? They're stunned in the silence. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, the only thing I would add is I'm not entirely sure. You know, I think that the benefit is the antibacterial effect of trimethyl sulfide. So if you're, if you're forced to use Dapsone or Tovaquone or contaminating or, you know, aerosolized. I'm not so sure that that's going to get you a lot of benefit. But I do think that uh, terephthalum sulfa is, is not a bad idea, but probably not for pneumocystis. Those cases have been extremely rare in people treated for hepatitis C. But, so I, I like terephthalum sulfa. So the, the, the comment that I would make is in a cirrhotic patient where you know they're high risk for sepsis, et cetera, there's probably clear benefit. I, I struggle, given a lot of our patients have pantotopenias um, and problems with their platelet count, et cetera, and you're going in considering adding another drug because I totally agree that you're not going to get benefit from those other things. Like you're not trying to prevent PCP. So um, so I generally do it specifically in those high, high, high-risk serotic patients, but I do not in a non-serotic patient who has a CD4 that drops. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That sounds about right. We just eventually they, we get nervous. If they get below like 100 or something, we have a handful that got like in the 80s. Sometimes we get nervous and start, but yeah, I would say the same thing. Not routinely for less than 200. So thrombocytopenia, I want to go through this quickly because um, otherwise we're going to run out of time. Um, you know, the primary management of thrombocytopenia, I think, is pegylated interferon dose reduction. Um, where you start, if you look at the package inserts, they recommend a higher level of uh, dose reduction or a, a lower threshold, if you will, to dose reduce. But I think practically it's pretty safe to, to push the envelope a bit um, when you dose reduce, around 30,000 or so um, to start dose reduction, maybe less than 50 depending on how comfortable you are. But I think the label says 75,000 for dose reduction. And then uh, we're just going to mention, since it's out there and it now has an indication for hepatitis C, ultrombopag. Um, and this was the, one of the original New England Journal studies that showed its efficacy. These were all patients that essentially needed to, to go on L-trombopag to kind of get on HCV therapy. And you can see with various doses, you see an increase in the platelet count before they initiate therapy. And in this study, there was a significant benefit in terms of more patients were able to tolerate therapy and complete therapy if they were treated uh, with L-trombopag compared to placebo. Um, it's recommended to start at 25 milligrams if you're going to use it in HCV. I've never used it. Anybody on the panel that uses L-trombopag? We send the patient to hematology. Yeah. Get them to treat. Yeah, okay. Yeah, what do, we just, what do we, you do? I said we, we just started a patient um, in the ACTG study, as a matter of fact, a co-infected. I mean, I think it's a tough situation. Luckily, we've treated some really tough patients at the VA especially. Um, and, and it never ceases to amaze me how the platelet count can just hover at 32,000 um, for so long. And so <laughs> I have found that we get to a point of dose reduction of the PEG but never have to go beyond. And like I said, we have one patient at the VA and one at, at Duke, a co-infected, that we had to start. And it's a tough decision because, um, yes, it's approved, but, uh, but this is a very high-risk population. The thrombosis is, is right. scary, I think. Um, so there was a lot of education, but we, we didn't. I don't involve him. We just did it. And, and Susanna is referring to the, the the adverse event risk, which is thrombosis arterial or portal vein thrombosis in particular, is what you worry about. It is dose associated though with higher doses. So, Mark, were you? Yeah, I was going to make sure we talked about thrombosis because oh, okay. they did a trial of cirrhotics uh, before procedures. So you're going in for uh, EGD and your platelet count's 
30. So you take this, and actually the study was essentially stopped because there were at least six cases of portal vein thrombosis that developed. So you have to be careful with this drug in cirrhotics, and it's not always predictable. It's not just the people whose platelet count goes to 600,000. It's it's people. It's not quite predictable. So I think it's a useful tool in a handful of people. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to just say that I've seen this drug used uh, several times, and one of the pharma pharmacological considerations is that if you're using this drug, it definitely has to be dosed on an empty stomach away from cations. And so if you've got somebody that's on telapavir, you definitely need to stagger the administration of this drug because it doesn't get in if it's bound to calcium, aluminum, and acids or anything like that. So definitely it has to be administered um, best on an empty stomach. And sometimes that has been somewhat problematic if patients are taking a number of medications in terms of staggering the administration. Yeah. When do you squeeze it in if they're yeah, on telaprovir? Right, exactly. Okay, thanks. Okay, so we're moving on now with this patient. She's at week seven of telaprovir, peg, and riba. She starts now with an itchy rash on her chest and arms. Um, so you bring her in. She doesn't have fevers, chills, or sore throat. No eye pain or discomfort. She's afebrile. Her other vital signs are stable. She doesn't, importantly, have any mucosal involvement, oral mucosal involvement, um, and no bolus lesions on her skin. And you estimate her body surface area here, 15 to 20%. So what's the best approach for managing this rash? Um, stop everything. Stop. What? Discontinue tilaprovir. What? Start prednisone, 60 milligrams. Antihistamines, topical corticosteroids, or call your lawyer. Oh, is that why? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Antihistamines and topical corticosteroids with close follow-up. Ninety-two percent. That's excellent. So, I'm not even going to ask the panel. Let's uh, breeze through this. And actually, we'll just roll right through it. Most were moderate uh, rashes in terms of the tilaprovir studies, but 5% did have severe rash, and about 6% stopped tilaprovir, one stopped the whole regimen. Um, so it sounds like you guys already know this, but this is important. You do have to grade it. Obviously, it's going to affect how you approach it. Um, and certainly, if they have severe cutaneous adverse reactions, so SJS, DRESS, TEN, et cetera, and I think you all are probably very good at identifying this, you would stop everything immediately. Um, and again, and maybe in the, in the interest of time, I won't go through this. You have a table in here of kind of some choices for topical corticosteroids and their potency and, and how they're applied, um, but you can refer to that in the slides. And here is just pictures of some severe rashes. And again, if you have scar, so, so to speak, you would stop everything. I, I will talk for just a second about anal rectal symptoms, which um, I think were probably underappreciated in a lot of the clinical trials, although they're certainly there um, at 26% uh, here compared to 5% in placebo. But um, in clinical practice, I think come up extremely frequently um, and can be particularly problematic for the patient. Um, so in terms of management for these, I think the top one is something that's maybe a little under-recognized, is, is making sure the patients are adhering to dosing recommendations. Presumably this is a, a direct local kind of toxic effect of drug that transits through the GI system and is coming back out, right? So it, I think its first step is important just to talk to your patient about how they're taking it and whether they're really adhering to the 
it's pretty difficult food restrictions and the amount of fat intake they should be using with tilaprovir. We've had a couple cases that really seem to improve if they just really concentrate on taking enough fat with their tilaprovir and presumably then absorb the medication and it doesn't make it all the way to the end. Um, and then you have typical topical treatments um, locally applied that can, can help you as well. Any comments from the crew? I think your points, I would actually say if your patient complains of anorectal burning, it means they're not taking their tilaprovir with enough fat. It, that, I wouldn't even, they'll, they'll, they may tell you they are, but they're not. So. <laughs> Um, it's it's an example of you know you have to talk about when they're eating the fat, how much they are, and you don't have to stop at 20 grams. Actually, at 40 grams of fat, the absorption of slapier increases uh, even Oof. more. So, if their anal rectal burning is a real problem, uh, review the fat. I think that point as well. Once we started to do that, yeah. it solved the uh, fire in the hole problem completely. It was uh, it was. Really remarkable. What's a 40 gram fat meal look like? Oof. Double yeah. a 20 yeah. gram. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Ask a silly question. Other, other thing that can be good is ba barrier cream like desitin. Uh -huh. re patients find that that's really successful. I thought I got rid of all desitin when my kids uh, grew up. I guess leftover from right? babies. Yeah, bring it in. And can I just put in a plug for healthy fats because? You know, you know, patients go crazy. They they go like, well, I can eat hamburgers and bacon and all that ice cream, which is okay some of the time. But we really, really want to emphasize heavy, not really saturated fats, but really healthy fats, so they don't gain like 40 pounds while they're on the three months of tilapavir, which That's what happens you hear in the sometimes. South, right, Susanna? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we have They're no worried about their healthy vets. It's all good. <laughs> oh, I figured they're suffering enough. What about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're good. Yeah. yeah they're okay. So bacon's good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah bacon is good. In the, in the last Sometimes. few minutes here, we're kind of eating, we've just been doing questions, yes. so we're kind of eating into our question and answer time a little bit. But just quickly, there's just one point I want to bring up in this second case, really. Um, so this is a co infected case, a 49 year old gentleman with AIDS um, had had a CD4 nadir of 44, 2% but had been suppressed on heart for quite a while. It was genotype 1A, um, a relatively low viral load, actually, you can see there, but did have br early bridging fibrosis on a biopsy. Um, this is the modified ISHAC system here, so an F3 out of 6. Um, currently, when, as we were contemplating therapy, a CD4 count was just above 200 with 12%, and he was on a raltegravir-based regimen that had actually been switched to accommodate therapy. Um, so he was well-appearing, actually, very muscular male, works out a lot. Um, and you can see here his initial um, weight is 90 kilograms. So he starts on therapy, um, has some nausea, anorexia, has a great response in terms of his HCV RNA, was actually undetectable at week two. By week four, he had already lost four kilograms and is, is very concerned about his body image and he's concerned about his weight loss. By week 12, um, he is down to 82 kilograms, so he lost eight kilograms now, so approaching 20 pounds. Um, patient, he was more depressed. And he, again, kind of a lot of these patients that have had severe HIV or AIDS are concerned about kind of this, you know, looking sick again and, and, and are very tied into their body image. So his depression was treated here with citalopram. Maybe um, mirtazapine maybe would have been a better option at that point. He also had interferon dose reduction at to 135 around week 28 um, due to mood, neutropenia, all kinds of things, and some of the weight loss. But then you can see here now by week 36, he's now down about 12 kilograms. So what would your next step be in the management of his weight loss? Is there a good management is probably the better question. But so you could stop all his therapy. He has had an EVR, ERVR, and he's at week 36. And maybe some of our panel will comment on that, whether they'd stop right now. Um, you could add mirtazapine. You could dose reduce PEG further to 90. Or would you, any of you prescribe medical marijuana? 
Okay, so, so most of you want to continue and would add mirtazapine, um, a few medical marijuanas, a few dose reductions, and a few brave souls, 8% would stop at week 36. How many up here would stop right now? Undetectable week two, he's now at week 36. Uh, you know, this is actually one of those situations where I would query what his IL-28 CC status is. Oh, I'll tell you why. He has a viral load of 126,000, which yeah. is a very clear marker of you know, chance of shortened therapy and improved mm -hmm. chance of response. He was, a, he was undetectable week two, which he probably would have been without telaprevir. And I would argue at that point, 36 weeks probably is enough. He's not a cirrhotic. He's mm -hmm. mid-level staging. And, and, and whether I would outright stop him or maybe say we fought a good battle and really assess things, but I think stopping may not be the wrong answer in this case, especially mm -hmm. if he's out of 28cc. Yeah, I mean, I've essentially done this, stopped a patient with severe side effects of, of, at this level at, around this, this time. This yeah. point. Yeah. So. I agree. Yeah. He's lost an awful lot of weight. He has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it bothers him quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. He's still on therapy, or I think he's still on. Yeah, he's still on. So he was a bridging fibrosis. Well, how long ago was that biopsy? Two years. Uh, 2009. 2009. Right? So that's uh, was, or no, eleven. Twenty eleven. So it was yeah. a year before so, we started therapy. You know, I think that uh, cirrhotic patients, even uh, yeah, they so definitely do better with longer treatment. But uh, on the other hand. It will, you'll hear more about new therapies coming. They're they're coming so close. Uh, my my enthusiasm for treating people for 48 weeks with a lot of side effects in that second half is diminishing. So, uh, the idea we now actually have data that telaprevir and bocephalor failures can be treated again with uh, regimen. So, yeah. I, I think the discussion as more options are emerging over the next two years, uh, stopping is not as bad as it used to be. Yeah. in terms of uh, no other options. Okay. Great. And so here's just a slide on weight loss. We don't need to go through in detail, but weight loss is very common, more common in co-infected patients. I'm sure you all already know this. Um, with If you look at a 5% weight loss threshold, it's extremely common, up to 80%. And then what would be considered severe weight loss, greater than 10% of their baseline weight, uh, a third of patients, you could expect that at least. Um, and you can see the risk factors here. You know, the initial management would try to be frequent small meals and dietary supplements. Um, I have to say, I, I'm not terribly impressed with how efficacious that is during therapy. And then we talked about mirtazapine before um, and some other possibilities that we don't routinely use. Um, okay, so I think that's actually it. We have some questions up here. Um, I won't read the conclusions. I'll just go to some of your questions here. We can leave the panel. Oh, we're supposed to do the post-test uh, Question again, so I don't want to forget that. I can. So go ahead, let's do this first. So which of these side effects is characteristic of both Flapfer and Bocephor? You guys better not do worse. You did so well the first time. Okay, good. Oh, 5% increase. Excellent. Okay. Great. So, um, while we still have our panel up here, and in the last few minutes, let's do, we have a few questions here. If anybody has other questions, come up to the microphone, too. Um, so somebody wants us to comment on the use of Ritalin or Adderall for depression and fatigue, or uh, specifically for fatigue. And then they also say, what about New Vigil for fatigue, or inability to balance your checkbook, maybe? So um, I, we don't routinely use much Ritalin or Adderall. I don't know. Does anybody up here? It's been recommended by our psychiatrist on a couple of occasions, but uh -huh. I, that is in conjunction with them. I've not used it myself. Used it. Let's put it that way. Has anybody used it? 
No. Okay. Any new vigil? We've used a little bit of Bonafidil, which is the, it's not, it was that Pro-Vigil. Pro-Vigil. Right. Um, and it does, you know, it works for a little while, but most patients we've given it to, after about two weeks, they kind of say, you know, it was working great, now it's wearing off, can you give me more? <laughs> and it just doesn't, so it hasn't had the kind of impact that we would have liked to have gotten out of it beyond a, a week or two on it. So, um, but we have used it for patients who are struggling with fatigue, uh, kind of getting through their day. Okay. Another, so once you dose reduce ribavirin, can you just leave it dose reduced or should you try to push it back up as tolerated? So um, kind of touched on this. I mean, I think it depends on how much you've dose reduced maybe, but um, probably not much use in trying to push, torture yourself and titrate it back up as long as you're above 600 probably. I don't know any other different thoughts. Do you, do you push hard to try to get it back up if they respond? Uh, like what, if they're above 12, maybe yeah, the hemoglobin I mean, comes back up to above 12? 200 and I pushed her back up to 400. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't too comfortable at yeah. 200. 600, though, I, I would be pretty comfortable even on 600. And I mean, unless, you know, I guess the hemoglobin gets back up to 13 or something like that, you could go back up. Some of it's the timing, right? When, when you're stopping them and what drug they're on and where you are. But I usually try at least to get them, uh, to get them up uh, at least by 200 milligrams once their hemoglobin goes above 10. Above and 10. if they don't, if it doesn't work, then we go back down again. Yeah. It requires a lot of close monitoring and more labs, but yeah. we try. Okay, do you use Aranacep in your practice? Is that Darbopoietin, right? Um, any benefits over Procrit other than less frequent injections? Um, so I think one, we've kind of touched on that we probably, many of us are not using that much erythropoietin anymore, period. Um, we've never used Darbopoietin or NSF, anybody? We use it for transplant patients, but we don't use it for the hep C. Mm -hmm. There's some published studies. Um, they, early on, back in the, when this was sort of popular, maybe 15 years ago, there were some studies of it. And uh, it works. Yeah, sure. No reason not to. If it's cheaper for your plan, mm -hmm. it's no reason not to do it. And it can be dosed every other week, which is uh, some advantages of that. Maybe yeah. even once every third week. Any other, so we're about out of time. Uh, any other questions, kind of side effect management, things like that? We had one other question that came up that was um, probably more for Dr. Price, but she's already left. They want us to clarify the labs for hepatitis A, B, and C in terms of core uh, antibodies and antigens and things like that. So I guess we can do that. Should we do that? Sure. So, I mean, for hepatitis A, right, IgM would be your really standard diagnostic test of choice because most are going to have a positive IgM at the time they're symptomatic. Um, and then you can check a total or an IgG for evidence of immunity. Um, hepatitis B is probably what this is mostly referring to. Um, so core antibody would be evidence of past infection. Um, there used to be a role for checking IgM to core um, during the so-called window period when hep B surface antigen might be declining, but before surface antibody came up, I think now with HPV, PCR, and things like that, there's really not much of a reason for an IgM core that we check very frequently. Um, surface antigen, generally positivity, would be the indication of chronic uh, infection. Most frequently, obviously, and now we'd all check an HPV DNA as well as an HPV, HPV surface antigen to know about chronic infection. Um, I think we can talk more about this. Whoever has a specific question, if they want more on the specific serologies in terms of E and other things like that. 
So the answer to the board question is the healthcare worker will not have core antibody positive. That's on every internal medicine board you'll ever take. How can you tell the difference between a healthcare worker who's been vaccinated from a patient who's been infected? And it's the core antibody total will be negative in a healthcare worker. Yeah. Or C, just guess. A question regarding serology results in hepatitis B. Mm -hmm. For someone who's about to get some major immunosuppressive event, such oh, okay. as huge doses of prednisone or a liver transplant, would getting a hepatitis B core IgM be useful to find out those people who are at risk for unmasking chronic active hepatitis B that is normally suppressed by an intact immune system? Yeah, so was this your, was that your question? Yeah, so I mean, you'd want to check a hepatitis B core to know if they were infected at some time in the past and because yes what you're saying is you know somebody going undergoing cancer chemotherapy or transplantation could have reactivation of their hepatitis b even if they're surface antibody positive at a protective level going in and their hbb dna is negative it's been well described in, and certainly in the literature of reactivations of hep b from somebody who was previously thought to be you know immune so yeah if they were core negative you'd presume they'd never been infected and they were vaccinated hopefully they could tell you that if all they had was surface antibody does that make sense so oncology now recommends every patient going on uh, chemotherapy, rituximab, transplant, they get surface antigen, surface antibody, core antibody. Because there have been 30 deaths from core antibody alone on rituximab. So it's reverse seroconversion. There's, the answer in the boards is they've recovered or they're immune, but it's not true. There is no DNA virus in the body that's cleared. It's latent. And what turns it on best is stem cell transplant and rituximab. And it's occurred up to 12 to 18 months after rituximab. So they must be prophylaxed and treated. Oh, that, that, that standard is not really well accepted among oncologists. We just had a M&M conference at, with our oncologist at Johns Hopkins, and boy, it was a heated debate, because the oncologists at our place don't feel they should do that. That's a, a discussion for another day. Yeah, I guess they don't care about the deaths. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a real issue, and all the guidelines, the oncology guidelines now recommend it, so you can pick it up. But I think we ought to start off by teaching medical school that it isn't immune. You know, you don't, you haven't recovered from your hepatitis B. I mean, where to blame? We should be rewriting all the textbooks. Okay. On that note, I think it's time for lunch. And, and oh, thank you. We're going